People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we've got a great treat. The author of the book, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, Imogen Hermes Gower, is joining us from England. I have been very passionate about this book from long before it was released. I've been mentioning it as one of the reading highlights of 2018. The book was released, and we've mentioned it in review after review here on the show. And I made it a personal mission to get the author to join us in conversation. And that day has arrived. Welcome, Imogen. Welcome to Chaife. Welcome to a South African audience. And it's just a great pleasure to have you on our show with us. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to be on. Thank you. Before we get to the book, uh, I firmly believe that authors are more than just the books that they write. And even though for the last few months you've most probably been quizzed about mermaids and museums more than I think anyone else in the history of mm-hmm. literary writing, I would like to go beyond the book. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms? Hmm. Um, so my name is Imogen Hermes Gower. Um, I guess I've always loved writing, but my other kind of passion has always been history. Like that's something I always thought I'd do for a job. Um, I used to volunteer in National Trust Properties, and I studied at that um, university. And that's I ended up working in museums um, for quite a few years in my twenties. Um, so that's always been kind of like my baseline interest is how did people live in the past trying to I suppose like retrieve the textures of people's lives wondering about how women especially would have lived um trying to reach things that are almost you know kind of half reachable now in our memory um so that was kind of my I've always written fiction but you're kind of never told that you can do it for a job um so my work was always museums and then whilst I was working in museums I started writing short fiction um and ended up going to do a creative writing MA and this the novel kind of came out of that. The, the Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, it's your debut novel. The book yeah. itself has quite a story of its own from your initial inspiration to being published and you've been pub you published by Harville Secker, it's an imprint at Penguin mm-hmm. Random House. Can you share that story from an original spark to the bound book? Okay, so um, whilst I was working, I was actually working at the British Museum at this point. I moved to London, and that was where um, I got my first job in London. Um, <clears throat> and it's it's a really large museum. It has a huge, incredible collection, but a lot of the time uh, it can be quite quiet sometimes. And one of the things that I started making myself do was look at the objects and the artefacts and try and think about who would have owned them or where would they have been and try to spin, I guess, like a little piece of short fiction from the objects. And one of the objects in the British Museum is a mermaid. Um, It's like this, it's an 18th century mermaid, probably made in Japan, and it's actually made from like a monkey stitched onto a fish's tail. It's like the size of a newborn baby. And it's quite, like, vicious and scary-looking. Um, and I was looking at that one day, thinking, who would have owned this in the 18th century? Like, when they were... Was he making a, you know, a collection of curiosities? Did he send off for this on purpose? What was he expecting when it turned up? And kind of from there, the idea for this novel 
I guess, kind of just fell into my head quite fully formed. The arc of it that I'd imagined when I was first looking at The Mermaid is really very similar to what the novel has turned out to be. But it took me a long time to write it. I kind of held back from it for a long time because I knew I wanted it to be set in the 18th century and I knew that would involve massive amounts of research and I really held back from it for ages, being worried that I wouldn't be able to deliver on it. Once you started writing the, the the Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, you also won a number of awards for the for, for the manuscript yeah. form of the book. Yes, that's right. So I um, well, I was kind of quite near the end of writing it, and I needed, I guess, a kind of motivation to keep delivering it. So I um, entered something called the Mislexia First Novel Prize, which is a women's. Um, debut novel prize so you send in your manuscript an unpublished manuscript Um, and I kind of sent it in just to keep myself going to give myself a deadline to write to Um, and I got long listed for it which I wasn't expecting and then had to deliver the whole manuscript so I spent about two weeks just like polishing it like crazy and delivering it for deadline and eventually became a finalist for that and it was also um, a finalist for the Deborah Rogers prize which um, uh, recognises literary excellence in debut novelists this was all before the book was before the manuscript was sold to a publisher um but i kind of i think a lot of being a writer is trying to put yourself if you want agents to notice you there's a lot of having a profile and sometimes entering competitions and things like that really helps firstly honing your craft and also making you visible but it's something that so many people are doing you really need to find specific ways to make yourself um, noticeable, I guess. Um, so that was my way of putting the mermaid out in the world before getting ready to publish it. Um, yeah. And then from there, you were put into contact with Penguin Random House and Harville Sicker yes. picked the book up and you were published. Yes. Yes. Yes, very slowly. <laughs> that makes it sound like really whistle stuff, but it was originally sold in the summer of 2016, so it was a good, like, 18-month wait between selling the book and it kind of ending up on shelves. So that has been quite surreal, you know, kind of walking around and knowing it myself, knowing that I've sold a book, but actually the wait until it gets published and you can hold it in your hands is, is really a very long one. To the, to, the, to the book now, without giving too much away, mm. what are the basic elements of the storyline? Okay, so it's set in London in 1785. And at the beginning of the book, we have this merchant, a middle-aged merchant living in Deptford, um, which is just outside London where the boats, where ships are built and where they all pass through on their way out to the sea. Um, He's waiting for his ship to return with hopefully a lucrative cargo and it doesn't come back. Um, What he gets instead of his ship is just this mummified mermaid which his sea captain has exchanged the ship for. Um, So Mr. Hancock is forced to put this mermaid on display to try and recoup some of his losses. It ends up in a very high-class brothel, which is where he meets this desirable courtesan, whose name is Angelica Neal. Um, And she's kind of, in her late 20s, she's kind of slightly down on her luck. She has been... um, bereaved of the man who used to pay her bills and she's looking for a new keeper to pay for her. So that's kind of how the book opens up, is in this kind of 
London social world of the 1780s. We're speaking to Imogen Hermes Gower, the author of the debut novel, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. We've got a lot more discussions around the book straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And as I've been promising from the beginning of the year, the end of last year, we have been working very hard to get Imogen Hermes Gower on the, on the line from England to discuss her book. It has made a big impact on my reading year this year, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. I've been raving about the book since I read it. I've reviewed it on the radio. I've spoken about it more since the review. And finally, we have Imogen on the, ra- on, on the line from, 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 from England. We're discussing the book, the, the Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. It is available in all bookshops in South Africa. A few weeks ago when I went to exclusive books, there in the window was this beautiful display of The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. And the cover is gorgeous. It's got these open clamshells with this beautiful background it almost looks like the type of thing would be on, on on wallpaper or on curtaining from the from georgian england and that leads us to the next question you spoke about putting off writing the book because you needed a lot of research mm-hmm. how did you find out the details of daily life and of low life and of high life in London in the 1780s? <coughs> oh, sorry, excuse me. Um, I think it was quite lucky that I have this museum background and that I'd already kind of read a lot about the period for fun. That I think, so I did specifically choose the period because I felt really comfortable in it, that it had a tone of voice that I felt um, resonated with me and I understood like the politics and the culture and the um, aesthetics of it. It felt comfortable for me to go into that. I've always really loved the late 1780s. Um, it kind of has a really particular sense of humour and style that has always really appealed to me. Um, so I had a head start there that I kind of roughly understood how the characters would have lived. Um, but from there... It was lucky. I was also really lucky that I lived in London and I was able to walk around it a lot. Like everywhere I read about, I would try and go there. And, you know, London has a lot of really ancient buildings, but also many of the streets have been built and rebuilt, you know, loads of times. So there might be a footprint of it there, but, you you know, not the original buildings. But you still kind of learn so much walking around these, you know, little 18th century lanes and streets. Um it did help bring it to life, going to these places, imagining what happened there before. Um, and I read a lot. So I read things like, um, there were a lot of cookbooks written during the period, um, particularly by this guy called Frederick Nutt, who had worked at a, um, sorry, what's the word? Um, a confectioner's shop, which is kind of mentioned in the book, actually. Um, but to be able to recreate all of these 18th century recipes and delicacies for, you know, jellies and ice cream um, and all of these fancy biscuits, that was that was really fun, cooking in an 18th century way. Um, I tried to... Um, so the dress that lots of characters wear in the book, which is called a chemise à Lorraine, which is like a really light white muslin dress. And I tried sewing one of those myself, which was really interesting. Um, actually kind of getting to, 
understand the fabric and how it's made and how it feels to wear it. That was really useful. I really try and do as much physical stuff as possible. But then reading, I read a lot of contemporary academia. I would be in the in the um, British Library every day um, after work. Um, researching, reading what historians were saying about the period and also accessing a lot of documents from the period. So, like, court transcripts I read a lot of because they, you know, are direct reports of how people actually spoke. Um, that was amazing for, like, little turns of phrase and things. Um, and also this pamphlet that's called Harris's List that's, like, it was a kind of user's guide to 18th century sex workers, um, so it has the addresses of each woman and a description of her and how old she is, whether she's pretty and what she does and how much she costs. And men were actually using this in the 18th century to visit prostitutes. And that, for me, was an amazing resource, just having this tiny insight into the characters and lives of the women that I was writing around. Um, so, yeah, I was very single-minded, I think, about my research. Um and was really immersed in it for a long time. Like, I think that readers can tell when you don't really know your period. Like, you know, we can all smell uncertainty. So I just wanted to be, like, right in there as much as possible. Would you succeed at when Angelica walks into the confection, the confectionery, ah, the confectioner, <laughs> I wanted to yeah. reach into the page and taste the things that she was eating. And uh, also, I loved writing that. It was great. As a reader, I could feel that. I could feel your enjoyment. And also the turns of phrases and the idioms that, that you have in your dialogue is very true to the period. And mm. as a reader, I could pick up that you did research, but I had no idea that you'd gone to logbooks and uh, the British Museum and spent must have been countless hours dedicated to the perfection of the detail of the period. So. It was. Oh, yeah, it was really fun, though. Like, I think if I hadn't enjoyed the research, I don't think I could have done it. Like, but come away with it feeling like, oh, I have a really interesting turn of phrase or, like, a funny joke or something that kind of uh, really drew me through it, I think. I want to turn our attention to the mermaids uh, because that mm. is quite an, mm. the, that is quite a pivotal part of the book. Your mermaids are not the creatures of fairy tales. They are far more complicated and they're very difficult to pin down. In your novel, they are still the points of gravity holding the characters and the plot in their orbits. What do mermaids mean for you? I think that even today, mermaids still kind of speak to female power, a really specific feminine power. I think I, when I remember being a little girl and being very interested in mermaids, and I don't think it was ever for they're being beautiful it was more that I wanted to be able to I I was quite compelled by their powerfulness and strength the idea of kind of swimming alone in the deep ocean was something that really spoke to me um and I think definitely I was very interested in the kind of traditional folklore about mermaids which really kind of deal with how do we as a society treat women with agency? That I think there's something quite threatening about this supernatural woman who can seduce men to their deaths. Um, like that entity in, pop, in popular consciousness of that 
woman with agency is dangerous and she's dangerous to men and um especially in a context where like people are going away to sea for maybe years at a time and wives don't know where they are you don't know if they're being faithful you don't know who they're thinking about um to kind of pin that blame on these supernatural beings rather than you know real women in different ports um i think is quite an interesting way of society dealing with that social element of men and women being separated from each other and but I think there's so much to conjure with with mermaids because I don't think many people have a neutral response to them. That even nowadays, people respond quite strongly to the idea of them. And your imagination is running as soon as I say the word, like in whatever direction. Um, but people are still people are still even making fake mermaids. Um, I saw pictures of one a few years ago. I think about 2015. Some people. Um, on the east coast of England staged this, like, mermaid wash-up with this really grotesque-looking corpse that they created. I think, like, people almost still really want to believe in it. The same way as I think a lot of people kind of want to believe in aliens, we almost want to believe there's something human in the water in in that kind of dangerous remote space. Um, so, yeah, I think it is very fertile territory that there are so many expectations already there that as a writer you can confound or fulfill or play with. Um, that was really, it's kind of a gift that just keeps giving. I really enjoyed writing about mermaids. I'm going to focus on your, 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 your the second name in your, in your name, Hermes. Mm. Hermes was the messenger god in the Greek mythologies and he appears in the Odyssey um, warning Odysseus about the dangerous witch who has transformed <laughs> his sailors into pigs, and that was Circe. And you've just yes. been speaking about f- female protagonists and agency, and that is a motif in literature. Um, and uh, going back to Greek literature, you know, Greek mythology, a similar book to yours in investigating this theme you know as i've got it on my shelf to read it's madeline miller's book Circe. Oh, she yeah. she wrote the song of achilles a few years ago and she's she's yeah, also loved we are not, i reviewed it on my show and i've I'm, I, I can't wait to get into her new book but as as you've said you 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 you, you, you you're writing about a theme about women with agency and i think that's it's a strong current in contemporary writing that not only have mm. you written a historical novel set in the 1780s you've you've made a very current contemporary issue very much accessible to us through our reading and you've made it a very much a contemporary story even though it's set in the past I think as a society, as you know, as readers, I think we're much more interested nowadays in exploring stories that haven't really been told. That I think so. My novel is very female centric. I think the female characters vastly outnumber the male characters in it, um, and I wanted it to be that way. I think, like as I was researching it, the more I felt that almost it acted as a survey of how women survived in that very traditional patriarchal world that, you know, traditional history doesn't make much space for the women or, say, you know, any minor, you know, working class people or people of colour features, you know, non-entities in traditional history. And I think we're more and more interested in discovering those people's histories. 
they were there occupying the same space as these white men who are creating, you know, passing laws and leading battles. These other people were there too, and how did they live and what did they experience? And I think nowadays we attach a lot more importance to their stories than we did in the past. I would say, like, I suppose my choosing to make the book so focused on women is a political decision, and it's definitely focused, you know, is definitely made possible by the period that I'm writing in, that there's been so much extra research into the lives of women in particular in history, that I, I've been enabled by historians to write that story. But I think I've always questioned where the women were or who were the servants, what were they feeling at any particular point in history. Um, so it felt, I would have felt very uncomfortable, I think, writing a novel about a lot of men that wouldn't have been interesting for me in the same way I don't think as a man reading the the mermaid and mrs hancock i i have to say that i did enjoy it fully and that it didn't feel contrived it didn't feel condescending it's a proper story saying over proper lives and it's it's a yeah. valuable contribution to the contemporary discussion of women's place in society it's not really only relevant to the 1780s it's a it's a it's a powerful contribution to what is a, a, a growing and an important part of of of, of modern of contemporary literature we'll be oh, yes. thank you i hope so We'll be back with a few more questions with the author of Miss, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. It's Imogen Hermes Gower, who's joining us from England, straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with Imogen Hermes Gower, the author of the, the brilliant The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. I've been speaking about it since the end of 2017 and all the way through this year so far. And it's a great, it's a great pleasure to have Imogen joining us on the show. Uh, Imogen, just a few more questions that I, I, I want to ask you. So, a bit more about the, the life of the book after it was published. There have been a number of the exciting developments around the book. The television rights have been secured by Colin, um, uh, uh, by a, a, a BAFTA prize-winning producer. I just can't read my handwriting over here. Uh, yes, Colin Callender, I think. Colin Callender, yeah, his company Playground. Yeah. And he's a Golden Globe and a BAFTA-winning producer. How did all this happen? Are you involved in the project? Is there going to be, is there a date that we can look forward to, a miniseries, something coming out? The same story, but in a different format? With a different media? Um, I think it kind of depends on what they want to do with it. So, um, for me, I was really lucky because the agency that represents me has a TV and film rights department. So, it's quite easy. I, I think that really makes it a lot easier for people who you know, for producers like Colin who have taken an interest in the in the manuscript um, to buy the rights to it. So that was kind of how it came about. That um, it was luckily made easy by Curtis Brown to achieve something like that. Um, and I, I'm quite, I'm really looking forward to being in some way involved in the adaptation. Like I've met the team. Um, I've had like a really, a really good meeting with them. Um, and I really, really admire the things that Playground has produced before. Like they're a really solid company. They did um, the adaptation of Wolf Hall. Um, 
So I kind of know it will be in very safe hands. But beyond that, I don't know how they'll adapt it. Um, but it will depend on the writer. And there are things like, um, so I don't want to give any spoilers, but there's this mermaid in the novel, which I can imagine would be um, quite a challenge to adapt for television. But it's the kind of thing that you can conjure very easily with writing. But I'll be fascinated to see how it's adapted for screen, how it's made to work that way. Um and I, um, I think, I think I, sorry, I think when I finished writing the manuscript, I definitely had a feeling that I was ready for it to be passed on to, to have more hands on it. Um, so, you know, it went to my agent and it took, an, it had an editor and publicists and marketing have done work around it. It felt like a team effort, that manuscript, after a certain point. The writing is quite solitary, but then you're kind of ready to pass it on. And this does feel like another step along that road. It feels like I'm really comfortable to pass it on to the writers and the producers and have them make it work in their medium. Um, so I, I will have some involvement in the adaptation. I'll definitely be, I will be advising um, historically and things like that. Um but it definitely starts to feel like this is this book belongs to a lot of people. It's a project that, that has lots of people's work in going into it as we go forward rather than just being mine. It's very nice feeling like, yes, people are going to do things to it that I couldn't do by myself, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And it's so so it's so um, heartwarming to hear an author so generous about passing on their their novel to the wider world, which leads me to the next question. While you were writing the book, did you ever imagine such a favorable reception, both by readers and uh, reviewers and also by the film industry? Um, I think I really tried. This sounds incredibly boring, but I really tried not to imagine at all. Like, I didn't expect or hope. I kind of just knuckled down to writing it. Like, for me at that point, so I finished my MA. Um, I got work in a cafe to support myself just to write this book. That For me, it was like, if I don't write it, I'll always regret not having done it. That was my only expectation for it, was that I will have done it and I'll see what it can do. Um, but, you know, I never really dared pin my hopes too much on getting an agent or a publisher, especially not, you know, TV or film deal. I, You know, I never, ever would have let myself think about that. Um, and I think as a writer, I'm sure many, many writers will agree with me that you get, you kind of have to be prepared to get no for an answer that I think I operate even now kind of braced for rejection because you do get a lot of rejections and that's kind of the thing you have to take in your stride. Actually then eventually selling the book um, was really kind of, I almost didn't know how to respond, that I was so prepared for no, that getting a yes was really strange. Um, so I really, whilst I was working on it, I just really tried to write the book that gave me joy, to do it the way that I wanted it done so that I could be proud of it at the end no matter what happened um, and I, I kind of think that maybe that's the way that good work gets made when you aren't wondering when you're not trying to preempt the market you're not wondering what other people will like or buy you'll just have an eye for your own integrity um, 
and like I've said, I think readers can readers can tell. Readers can tell when you're not sure, and they can tell when you're not sincere. And I, I think whatever it was about the original idea that struck a chord with me struck a chord with other people. That I I think I'm not the only one interested in you know history and feminism and mermaids and so on. So um, I, it, I think I just wrote my interest, and luckily it's translated. But no, I I don't think. I think it's very dangerous to um, uh, imagine too much of what can pan out. But you know, that's a, that's a very um, that's a very uh, boring answer. I think that's a good answer. I, 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 having an answer like that gives a big insight into your actual creative process. And I think the, mm. the, the best thing that I can do in an interview with an author is to get as close to the creative process behind a book so that when we read the book or if we've read the book and we're looking back at our reading experience, we can see how you, the author, went through that creative process to create this cultural artifact that we call the novel. Uh, so now, mm. that was a, I enjoyed your answer. Last, oh, good. <laughs> last question for today is, are you working on anything new? <laughs> I am. I can't talk about it too much because it's still, I think, like, novels never quite come out the way you expect them to. But um, I am. And it's also set in London. I think it kind of has some of the same themes, but it's definitely not set in the 18th century. It's very different from that point of view. Um, so I, I hope that um, people who enjoyed The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock will enjoy the next one as well. But for the moment, I'm not saying any more than that. Okay, no, it just keeps us in suspense <laughs> for a little bit longer. But uh, we will, Anna, I will be very, very ready to read whatever else you do publish. If, if it is anything as close as to the enjoyment that I got from The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, it will be a very enjoyable read. Challenging as well as enjoyable. And that's, that's the experience that I think we all crave from a good book. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a lovely talk. It's been our pleasure. And uh, when the next book comes out, we will get you back on the on the on the on the on the phone, and we will bring your very very mature voice with a lot of thought <laughs> behind all of your answers, just like behind your writing, back to our sunny scars here in Johannesburg. Thank you, Imogen. It's been an absolute pleasure and a treat for us in Johannesburg. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've just finished our interview with Imogen Hermes Gower, the author of Miss, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. And uh, if you haven't read the book, if that interview, if her responses to the questions and the inspiration behind the book and the ideas in the book, if you've heard it for the first time now, that should be enough inspiration to go out and get yourself a copy of The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. We've got uh, a full show rest for the rest of, we've got a full program for the rest of the show. But before getting onto any more books this week, I just want to say, some of the exciting developments that are happening behind the scenes that will come to fruition in the next few weeks on the show. Next week, I'll be, we'll be in conversation with Leon Schreiber, who's a political analyst, studied in Stellenbosch in Berlin in Germany, and he is a researcher for Princeton University in America. His book, Coalition Country, is in the 
shops already, and he looks towards the 2019 elections in South Africa where his research and just tracking the election results of the last few years show that there's a high likelihood the ANC will get less than 50% of the vote in a number of provinces and tantalizingly even on a national level in national government and without any dominant party with more than 50% of the vote the chances of coalition governments or minority governments is very, very strong. So we'll be looking at South Africa's political landscape in the future, uh, in the future elections of 2019 on the 27th of April next week, which is the anniversary of our first democratic election. And then beyond the 27th uh, of, uh, of April, on the 4th of May, we'll be speaking to Mandy Weiner about her new book, will be released on the 1st of May. The book is embargoed at the moment, so not too much can be said about it, but the title of the book is available, and it's called The Ministry of Crime. We're looking at a intersection between uh, the underworld, criminal, criminal organizations, politicians, and the police. And then on the 11th of May, we'll have two interviews in the studio. One a local author, two local uh, local author and a local subject that will be Joan Jowell, the writer, and her book Winging It is about Jonathan Kaplan, the famous South African uh, ref, rugby referee who had a son on his own. He paid a surrogate mother to carry his uh, his baby, and uh, that's a very interesting. Discussion. The book Winging It is available in the shops at the moment. And in the second half of the 11th of May, we'll be interviewing British historical fiction author Kate Moss. She's the author of a number of very well-received, critically received and very successful historical fiction books, including Labyrinth. And her latest book, which is called The Burning Chambers, is starts off in Franschhoek in South Africa in the, in, the, in, the, in the late 1800s and then goes back in time to the 1500s to the religious wars in France. She'll be in the studio as well. And looking forward beyond then, as I mentioned last week, hopefully we'll be able to get Greg Hurwitz, the author of Orphan X, Nowhere Man, and Hellbent into the studio as well when he is in South Africa. So as you can hear, a lot of work in the background to turn people of the book here on HFM into not just a book show but I think the leading the leading forum for discussions of books and with interviews with authors in Johannesburg. Now the next book that we're going to talk about is a, a book that it's on a topic that I have hold very close to my heart maths and popular maths and popular science writing. The book is written by David Darling and Agneto Banerjee. What's interesting is, well, David Darling, there's nothing interesting, there was not too much interesting uh, that jumps out of the page, the fact that he's written a book, because he's a science writer and astronomer. His previous books have included Equations of Eternity and May Day. But what's interesting is his co-author, Agnijo Banerjee is a maths prodigy and is a student of Darling's. At the age of 13, he attained the highest possible score on Mensa's IQ test, and he achieved distinctions in the UK Mathematics Olympiad. 
successively over the past few years. Teacher and student have teamed up together to write a book popularizing weird aspects of math. So the book is called Weird Maths at the Edge of Infinity and Beyond. And it's written by David Darling, who coaches Agnijo Banerjee in maths. We'll look at this book and a few more straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are talking books. We are talking maths. We're talking child prodigies in maths who have co-authored a book on weird maths with their maths coach, their maths teacher. The book is a delightful journey of discovery. And David Darling, who is the teacher, and his extraordinary prodigy, Agnijo Banerjee, draw connections between the cutting edge of modern maths and life as we understand it, delving into the strange. Would we like alien music? And venturing out on quests to consider the existence of free will and the fantastical future of quantum computers. The book's packed with puzzles and paradoxes, mind-bending concepts and surprising solutions. The book is great reading for anyone who wants life's questions answered and even those life questions that you never thought to even ask. I was paging through the book over the last, I've been paging through the book over the last few months, looking at the different topics that are discussed, and with a you know metric level maths that I have, not nothing, nothing, uh, no math studies in university, but with an interest in maths, and I do think that uh, as parents and as educators, we should be looking for these type of books that we can share with our students and with our own children in our own houses, in our own homes, to make maths more exciting than just what you do in school. Because maths truly is much bigger than just what you, what, you, what you have to study and practice to get that A in matric. Some of the subjects that the, the authors select are very pure maths as opposed to applied maths. The first chapter takes on the idea of seeing in the fourth dimension with descriptions of 4D extensions of the cube called a tesseract. There follows a chapter on the probability, on probability emphasizing non-intuitive findings. And then there's a great chapter on fractals. It's a field that deals with curves that have fractional dimensions. This field of fractals grew out of a paper by the field's inventor, Benio Mandelbrot, that asked, how long is the coast of Britain? That was fascinating, just to find out the, 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 just the fact that to actually measure a coast is an actual, it's a mathematical almost impossibility, because the, the, the closer you measure to the real coast, every single rock and every single inch of seashore, the more almost approaching infinity the measurement of the coast will become. So that was and very interesting as well. As I mentioned, alien music and harmonics, computer science and number theory, all of these different topics are grappled with by a maths teacher and his prodigy. So that's David Darling and Agnijo Banerjee's Weird Maths. And I always like bringing some popular maths or some popular science into the show because I do think that as educators and as parents, we should be extending our 
students and our children beyond just what they're going to learn in school. And I like the idea of buying a book like this and as a parent, reading through a chapter in your own time and then even making notes and discussing that with your children just to extend them and show them the actual that maths isn't just a subject in school. It has a sophistication and a beauty and an application far beyond just trig algebra and geometry. The next book we're going to talk about is a beautiful, beautiful book. It's the second book written by Catherine Arden, the first book that she wrote, which we did review here on the on the on people of the book, was The Bear and the Nightingale. And what Catherine Arden has done is nothing short of magic realism set in medieval Russia. After the critical success of her twenty seventeen debut, The Bear and the Nightingale, Catherine Arden, who lives in Austin, Texas, is now back again with another elegantly crafted world that melds folklore and fantasy with a splash of historical fiction for good measure. The Girl in the Tower, the second installment of her Winter Night trilogy, begins where the bear and the nightingale left off. But you can read it as a standalone as well. Set in medieval Russia, the story stars Vasilisa Petrovna, or Vasya, who's on the run after having been accused of witchcraft following the violent deaths of her father and stepmother. Finding brief refuge in the fir grove home of one Morozka, an morally ambiguous frost demon, Vasya soon aches for adventure. Leaving the safety of the forest, she begins her new life as a traveller, exploring Russia far beyond the boundaries of her childhood home. Understanding the dangers of journeying alone as a woman, Vasya disguises herself as a man as she rides through the freezing countryside of ancient Rus. That was the name of Russia because the word Russia didn't come into common use until the 1600s, the 17th century. On discovering a series of villages, each burned to ashes with their young girls kidnapped, Vasya determines to free the girls and stop the bandits. But a chance encounter after a bloody confrontation sees her welcomed into the court of the Grand Prince of Moscow. However, it soon emerges that the city itself is under threat from something far more sinister than a band of opportunist rogues, and Vasya may be the only person who can protect the town and its people. From the outset, Arden's research and understanding of 14th century Russia is lovingly woven into The Girl in the Tower. She blends historical characters and established folk, folk tales into the fantasy setting of her own fictional world with apparent ease. Vasya and her brother, for example, seem as much a part of Russian history as the Grand Prince Dmitri or the Golden Horde of Mongols. Indeed, Arden spends much of her time further developing characters we thought we already knew in The Bear and the Nightingale, while introducing new historical entities. For instance, we witness the development of Vasya's wisdom and strength as she's given the space to grow and mature into adolescence. She eventually becomes more resilient, judicious, and in tune with her own powers and magical capabilities. At the same time, Morozko, who is the frost demon we mentioned earlier, loses a certain maturity. He's often capricious and occasionally petulant. 
Meanwhile, Olga, that's Vasya's sister, weakens in both spirit and flesh. She capitulates to the expectations of her gender and station, making her a realist counterpoint to Vasya, who holds an almost unshakable idealistic outlook throughout the book. Gender plays a prominent role throughout the book, and this is a way, in a way, is a very common theme in contemporary historical fiction, like we mentioned with uh, The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, and in another book that we'll be reviewing here shortly, Circe, uh, the, the, the Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock by Imogen Hermes Gower, and Circe by Madeline Miller, here with The Girl in the Tower by Catherine Arden, we see the same idea, gender playing a prominent role throughout the book, and women with agent and agency. Uh, taking on major roles within this historical fiction. Gender, as I said, plays a prominent role throughout The Girl in the Tower, and Vasya pushes against the conventions of her time with just enough weight to make for a compelling inversion of expectations without being anachronistic or didactic in tone. It's always gratifying to see our young heroine question and fight back against the arbitrary male-enforced rules of the Middle Ages with the courage of her own convictions and sense of justice. This is um, The Girl in the Tower. It's magical realism. It's fantasy-infected medieval Russia. And we, we are experiencing Vasya's adventures through Russia. Um, right from the book's opening chapter, Arden will definitely transport any reader to an alternate and forgotten Russia in the heart of winter. So vivid was her freezing, it was her writing, sorry, and the freezing forests and the snow-capped landscapes that you'll be searching for a blanket and a cozy nook to just cuddle up and read the, the rest of the book. Really does Arden present us with abstruse, uh, abstruse or unnecessary narrative details. Instead, we're treated to a mix of clarity and lyrical curly cues of thought, which the author can summon at will, manifested either in the words themselves or in the depth of her research. This is um, The Girl in the Tower by Catherine Arden, published by Del Rey, and it's one of the few books that we've gotten to today in our reviews. Look out for it in the bookshops when you go shopping it really is a magical a magical read we'll be back with a few more uh, discussions of books straight after this ad break people of the book on 101.9 high fm this is people of the book on 101.9 high fm a full show to a jam-packed show we interviewed Im- imogen hermes gower the author of the mermaid and mrs hancock we've been speaking about a number of other books Popular Maths and Science, uh, the book's called Weird Maths at the Edge of Infinity and Beyond, written by David Darling and Agnijo Banerjee. David Darling is a science writer, but Agnijo Banerjee is a teenager, and this is a teacher-student uh, um, pairing, and they are informing us about weird maths at the edge of infinity and then even beyond. We looked at... The Girl in the Tower by Catherine Arden, which it's the second book in her trilogy set in medieval Russia that has been infused with fantasy and and magic. And now for the next book that we're going to discuss, we're going to talk about um, a book. It's a, it's a, 
It's um, it's literary fiction. It's by Jim Grace, and Jim Grace is the author of um, a number of books, uh, including some that have been long-listed and shortlisted for the Booker Prize. The book that he's written that's just been released this year is called The Melody, and it's, once again, a book about the contemporary world, but set in a, set in the past. Alfred Busey, famed in his town for his music and songs, is mourning the recent death of his wife and quietly living out his days in the large villa he has always called home. Then one night, Busey is attacked by a creature he disturbs as it raids the contents of his larder. Busey is convinced that his assailant was no animal, but a child, innocent and wild. And his words fanned the flames of old rumours of an ancient race of people living in the bosque, that's the, the, the forest surrounding the town, and the new controversy, the town's paupers, the feral wastrels at the edges must be dealt with once and for all. Also, Alfred Bussey lives in a house that his brother, Joseph, who's a property developer, is trying to buy so that he can develop it into a high-rise. The book is set about 100 years in the past, and we're experiencing the clash between a, a settled civilization, a settled society, and the outsiders have very, very many overtones for today's political environment with refugees streaming across borders uh, from the developing world into Europe and into America. We see it across our own borders from Zimbabwe, Malawi into South Africa. So we have this theme of the other, the, the, the wilder person coming to live and possibly destabilize the settled society that they are living at the edges of. The book is a story about grief and aging, about reputation and the loss of it, about love and music, and the peculiar way myth seeps into real life. It's also a political novel. Uh, the author, Jim Grace, is a socialist, so you do feel through the book and his own writing his socialist um, vision for society. It's a rallying cry to protect those that we persecute. The author, as I said, Jim Crace, is a, uh, a shortlisted, a Man Booker Prize shortlisted author. He's in his, into his 70s. His books have been extremely well received, critically and commercially. And this is uh, a, it's a literary novel for people who like their reading to be a little bit more challenging. As I've said at the beginning of the show, next week we'll be talking politics. We'll be talking South African elections 2019. We'll be talking diminishing ANC majorities, possibly even to less than 50% of the vote. We'll be talking coalitions and minority governments with uh, political analyst Leon Schreiber, South African, who does research for Princeton University. That's our show for today. And then all I have left to say to everybody is good Shabbos and keep reading.